I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of the Gibson Review. Each week, we talk about our week in review, move on to the main event, which is either a topic of discussion or a main review, and then we move into our third segment, Film Faves our respective lists of our favorite movies around a particular topic, most often marching through time year by year. But not this time. Not this time. In this episode, it's all Oscars all the time. So the main event will be talking about the upcoming Academy Awards and their nominees, and as well as in film phase, we will be looking at our favorite Best Picture Winners. But first, before we begin, I have a regret. And <laughs> believe me, I was kicking myself very hard over uh, this, as I often am over regrets that we have. In our last episode, we did our favorite movies of 2003. It was fantastic, great lists, but I messed up. I have no idea how this happened. You see... I don't even know what he's talking about. So this is very interesting. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So when I compiled my list, I had all these favorite movies. And then I transposed that list to another platform, I think onto the computer or something, to organize the list in order, right? Somehow, what got lost in that was the film In America, which is directed by Jamie Sheridan, who also directed... Best Picture nominee from 1999, My Left Foot. There's a uh, connection. But this film was about an Irish family who moves to New York with the weight of a tragic past that is kind of carrying or following with them, right? Uh, the dog like, does. Kinda, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't even think there's a dog. But, <laughs> but there's definitely this cloud hanging over... The family, more or less. Uh, it's a beautiful film. It's absolutely touching film. It's one of my favorite films. It probably would have been my top five of that year. And somehow I missed it. So I just wanted to give a brief airtime to In America. If you can, hunt it down. Now, Shanna, do you want to tell us your week in review? My week in review starts with... The Golden Girls, available to stream on Hulu. All the seasons, every episode, all, all the of seasons. it. All the seasons, wow. How many Everything. seasons are there? I think there's like, I don't know, eight. It's a I'll lot. Look, I'll look quickly. It's a lot of episodes. I mean, you think, like 24 episodes a season or something like that? Yeah. Now, I didn't grow up with this. I mean, I, I always saw it in passing. In fact, I had one friend that was very mature. And at age eight, she would binge the Golden Girl marathons, you know, because oh, we, like didn't, on TBS we didn't have, I don't even know what that is. Oh, yeah, South African, sorry. Yeah, so, like, it would be Channel 2 is having a Golden Girls marathon. <laughs> After a little bit of research, there are only seven seasons. Oh, well, you weren't far off. Yeah, but, okay, so here's what I want to say, is that it's such a delight to watch, and I love the characters. I think mm. they're so great. They're very well-defined. 
oh i really like them they're not like surface characters at all and mm. they don't hold back on anything either mm. um the humor is sometimes jarring to me because i never thought of the golden girls like this but just about all the humor is about sex well, I mean, you have, who is it, Blanche? <laughs> yes. Uh, alone? I mean, she's a, a freaking cougar. She's a cougar's cougar. I mean, this is, <laughs> what is she, in her 60s or something? I, have, I don't know, but she is. Get. Yeah. She is very much not what I thought it means to be when you're older. Uh-huh. So, but then you have Sophia always reacting to her, too, right? <laughs> and she's amazing. Yeah. I love her so much. She reacts to Rose, her stupid stories, as one. I really yes, like, yes. I love Rose. I think I'm oh, Rose. Really? I feel, maybe it's just when I'm self-conscious, I feel like Rose. Hmm. Maybe each character represents a different part of ourselves. That's interesting. So go ahead and read into that, where the Sicilian mother is. She doesn't take any shit. Yeah, <laughs> It's so great. It's such a great show. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, that's a that's a great show. I For a while, uh, I think it was my teen years, I thought, oh, that show is for old people. But really, like, you watch it. When you actually are watching it, like, the mm. humor is so sharp and fresh. Even for the 80s, um, as an 80s sitcom, uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's enjoyable. And honestly, being an 80s kid, I hear that theme or see that opening title sequence. I, I get, like, the, the nostalgia feels, you know? So. Yeah. For my week in review, I caught up with Jacques Tati's The Young Girls of Rochefort, which recently we talked about the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which uh, I think you had seen that with me, right? Yes, I got to watch that with you. What right. a fantastic musical. Now, with The Young Girls of Rochefort, you only got to see a couple uh, scenes here or there. I actually, you know, we were kind of lukewarm on Umbrellas. Yes. I really liked Young Girls of Rochefort way more. Mm, I agree. The little bit that I got to see, it was so much more exciting. Yeah, the songs are catchier and more fun. Uh, Catherine Deneuve is back. It's very cutesy, some of it. Some of it, some of it, yeah. It's, It's a lot of fun. I should say, for those who aren't familiar... This is a 1967 French musical that's about two sisters who leave their town in search of romance. They're hired as carnival singers, and one falls for an American musician while another must search for her ideal partner. Uh, that's actually according to IMDb. And actually, the whole like leaving the town thing, that actually doesn't happen till the end of the movie, really. But they, they both long to leave their town. I should say Gene Kelly co-stars in the film, and that's definitely notable because about 15, 16 years prior, he had starred in a Vincent Minnelli uh, musical called American in Paris, and apparently, you know, he's able to actually speak quite fluent French, and it's so it's actually him, as I understand, speaking French. You can, you know, hmm. if you watch it uh, with the subtitles. You can tell he's actually speaking the French language. Which is what we always recommend. Yes. Watch subtitles, never dubbed. But anyway, yeah, Young Girls Rochefort, I learned how to pronounce that town while watching the movie. (laughs) (laughs) 
Rochefort. He, he just couldn't Rochefort. figure it out. <laughs> well, you know, I want to American. It looks like it. Rockfort to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, that's a, a quite an enjoyable musical. I think it's one that not enough people these days are familiar with. It's not an obscure musical. It's actually quite influential. Uh, Bjork did a music video that was influenced by it. La La Land from last year. Oh, you can totally tell. That was influenced by it musically. Mm. So I highly recommend checking it out. It's actually available on the Criterion streaming service Filmstruck, but I actually got the Criterion DVD from Netflix. Next, in my week in review... By the way, that had great special features. Criterion always does. Indeed. So I revisited AI, Artificial Intelligence, by Steven Spielberg. (laughs) I tried. It didn't work out for me. Right, right. I think I've only seen this movie once before. It was sometime around 2002, 2003 when it came out on the video market. And at the time I was curious because it was supposed to be what Stanley Kubrick was going to do next after Eyes Wide Shut. Of course, he died. You can research the production history on this movie. Steven Spielberg actually had been in and out of talks to do this film for years. And uh, he did eventually take it over for Kubrick. Uh, it's interesting. I did not remember this movie very well, having had been like 15 years since I last saw it. Did I love it? No. It is better than I remember uh, it being, because I remember really not being a fan of it when it came out. Uh, 2001 film, sorry, not 2002. Spielberg's 2002 films were uh, Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report. So I will say, though, this film, its visual effects are outstanding. For it being the age that it is, and when you also think that the Star Wars prequels were coming out around this time, mm. it's it actually it's puts the Star Wars prequels to shame. It's pathetic <laughs> it's how really sad bad those films are and how poorly they hold up. But of course, AI is smart sci-fi. It's about this android played by Haley Joel Osment, who's built to love. He gets invited as this prototype to join this family who was grieving over a son. The son comes back, however, from his hospitalization. And one thing leads to another, and the android ends up getting kicked out of the family. He's off to fend for himself. And he kind of ends up being on this quest where he um, is familiar with the story Pinocchio, and he thinks if he's turned into a real boy, then his mom will love him and want him back. And Jude Law stars as another android that's made for another kind of love. Let's say his name is Gigolo Joe. And ultimately, I feel like the movie has a point in its third act where you can feel where it might have ended if it was Stanley Kubrick directing it, and then where Spielberg just kind of continued on with his own sentimentality. And the sentimentality, if I were to explain it to you, what happens in the last 20 minutes of the movie, I, you know, I will be a wreck. It's that effective. But I actually think this point 
in the film that I feel like is kind of this Kubrickian ending that leaves the character alone for a while would have been a much more fitting and albeit darker and um, intellectually intriguing ending. So that's all I'll say about AI. I'm not, I, I liked it more watching it a second time, but I definitely don't love it. And I think it's probably still kind of mid-level Spielberg. Lastly, I revisited Driving Miss Daisy for the purposes of this podcast. Driving Miss Daisy was the 1989 Best Picture winner. Shanna, do you know what it was up against in 1989? I unfortunately remember us having this discussion. Wasn't Field of Dreams one of them? Uh, Field of Dreams Which was is like one of, one of my ultimate favorites. Uh-huh. And can you remember anything else? Probably something as equally good. <laughs> uh, yeah, a few. Born on the 4th of July, which starred Tom Cruise. Uh, war film, not for you, but I have not a seen great that. film. Oliver Stone. Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams. Oh, God, that was good. Field of Dreams, as you mentioned. My Left Foot, which I mentioned earlier, that starred Daniel Day-Lewis. I actually don't know what that is. Well, you you should look into it. It's it's a fine film, fine performance by Daniel Day-Lewis. Name a terrible performance by him, honestly. But you know what? Driving Miss Daisy forced to be snubbed for Best Picture that came out that year. Was it E.T.? No, that's 1982 uh, or sorry. 1981. <laughs> what was it? What? Glory. I see. I. Which, you know, I don't want to get in a huge conversation about Glory. But we but... did try to start watching it this weekend. Well, I, I, couldn't, I... I couldn't get past the first 15 minutes. And yeah, we got 20 minutes into it before you could... Oh, I got to 20. Good for yeah, me. Yeah. Anyway, that is considered one of the finest Civil War films ever made. It has an exceptional cast. And somehow, it got overlooked in favor of Driving Miss Daisy. Now, I saw Driving Miss Daisy when I was like 9, 10 years old, when it first hit the video market. I remember being bored by it, and that's the only time I ever saw it. So I was curious if my adult self would actually appreciate it more than my child self. And you know what? It's okay. It's fine. You come really more for the performances by Jessica Tandy and Morgan Freeman and less for the story. Because, you know, it's Morgan frickin' Freeman and it's Jessica Tandy, you know? They're great, right? For those who don't know, who may be born after 1990 or whatever, it basically is a story set in the late 40s, if I remember correctly, where an old lady who's, like, in her 80s, She's basically too old to drive herself, and so Morgan Freeman gets hired by her son, played by Dan Aykroyd, to chauffeur her around. And she's really unwilling to... It's it's like a curmudgeonly relationship that eventually softens and turns into this 25-year-long relationship. So anyway... It's, it's an okay story. I know it's a Pulitzer Prize winning play and all, but at this point, it's, it's all right. It's fine. It's not outstanding, especially considering its competition at the time. The performances are great. They're exactly what you'd expect. I just don't think Driving Miss Daisy is spectacular and certainly not the best movie to uh, have come out in 1989 as, as deserving of its accolades at the time it was at least interesting to revisit it and kind of get a fresh new perspective on it 
All right, so that's my week in review. You Shana, got a lot done this week. Well, only a couple of things, really. Two or three. But we have actually seen a few things. Let's see if we can uh, get through them. In our quest to try to catch up with all the Best Picture nominees, or what we thought would be the Best Picture nominees, I think a few days before the Academy Award nominees were announced, we caught up with Molly's Game, starring Jessica Chastain. And Idris Elba. And Idris Elba, based on uh, real-life events and the actual autobiography called Molly's Game, about Mm -hmm. a former Olympic athlete who ends up running an underground casino. Yes. Yeah, which would be attended by some of the most powerful people and most famous people in our society. Shannon, what did you think of Molly's game? I was really hoping you would go first. Oh, okay. Well, yes. go, for, <laughs> go for it. I would say this is a, another great feature for Jessica Chastain that just shows off her talents. I think one of the things that when we came from the theater, I was saying is about Jessica Chastain is there is an intelligence to her acting that is consistent through almost every single role I've seen her in, be it from Zero Dark Thirty to Molly's Game, or even there's another movie. I was going to say Arrival, but that was Amy Adams. Uh, The Help? No, I was not going to say The Help. (laughs) I hate that movie. But Yes, we all know you hate that movie. Yes. If you actually look at the Gibson review for the year it came out, I actually listed it among the worst of the year. And that's when I wasn't really sure what I was getting into. When you discovered that. At any rate, you know, Miss Sloan, Interstellar. Oh, God, I loved her in Interstellar. Yeah, The Martian. All of these films. She has an intelligence about her as an actress and a strength and a confidence that that in itself has a certain kind of sexiness and intrigue that and it captivates as well she is one of the perfect examples of strong independent women of power you know in certain ways i think like her i've i've championed her since zero dark 30 you know uh, that character alone i think her name is anna is one of the best female characters of of the decade Anyway, Molly's game, she can, she doesn't disappoint. And I really think more than Miss Sloan from a year or two ago, Molly's game is a great feature for her, but also it's... I think the, 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 the story is interesting. I don't know that there's a lot that we can glean from it outside of what actually happens, but I do find the her story, Molly's story, quite interesting and kind of fascinating. Was that a helpful jumping off point for you? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to say now. I, I do agree with you. I think performances were fantastic uh, between Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba. It doesn't matter sure. what Idris Elba's doing. It's the same sort of thing, I think. You know, you talk about Jessica Chastain having this sort of strong academic acting mm. style with whatever she's doing. And I feel like Edris Alba has this really strong presence. And it doesn't matter what role he's in because he's not really in charge in this film. But it's still a strong... He always has this strong presence. He always... It's just so powerful. Yeah, yeah. Like inner power. 
Yeah. It's just, oh, it's so divine. It's yeah. so great. <laughs> anyway, now that I'm like lightheaded thinking about Edris Alba, <laughs> <laughs> I, I did enjoy the story. I think we need to see more stories like this, mm. you know. I, I, I think it's really important not to overlook the fact that this is Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. Yes, this is a good point. And, uh, of course, he wrote the script. How did you think he did as a director? I mm. do not think that my eye is trained hard enough yet to see where the director is coming in as opposed to where the actor is. I I don't know what to say. I don't know his his fingerprint yet. I think he does a capable job as a director in this film. You know, he, he definitely gets through. He doesn't do necessarily much to my memory that's you know, uh, signature or, or uh, you know, interesting visually as a director, his signature is really the intelligence of his writing. And I don't, you know, and in this case, I'm not familiar with the biography that he is adapting, so I don't know how much of it comes from the writing style and the voice in the biography, but, you know, his, his writing is always intelligent. It's always sharp with a, uh, a few flares of intelligence um, that comes from an intelli- uh, sorry, flares of humor that comes from an intelligence. It's not as fast walk and talk West Weenie as uh, one might think or be used to. And it's not at the same time as exceptional or it's not as important or significant a film uh, in its its story as the social network was, which he also wrote. Well, okay, now that you've talked about that, I would like to add that now I can see his fingerprint, you know, using those examples. Everybody in this film seems intelligent. Mm. No one seems stupid. His fingerprint, I guess, is intelligence with mm. his... You mean his signature? Yeah, style, that's yeah. his signature style, yeah. is everything must be intelligent... Everyone needs to be thinking about what they're doing. Yeah. So I guess... Yeah, he's always writing about smart people. Yeah. Look, I think this film, you know, like you said, it's not the most important film ever made. But it is important in that it's showing a different kind of female that we haven't really seen in film. Mm. You know, there are... And Jessica Chastain's known for this with Zero Dark Thirty and Sloan. There are women out there that have dogged determination mm. that go after whatever they set their mind to. Absolutely right, yeah. So maybe you, it needed just a little bit more oomph. Yeah. I mean, I don't know this person. I don't know Molly's actual story. Right. But it does make, this film does make me interested. Yeah, no, I think you make a, a really great point that this is just another example of how there needs to be more stories uh, or more films about women's story. And Chastain is, is shaping her career to be, in a way, uh, an actress that is telling these stories. So it's notable in that way. I, I, I recommend seeing Molly's Game. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fine film and worth seeking out. Okay, we have a couple more movies that is on our week. First, Pitch Perfect 2. We finally caught up to <laughs> 2015's Pitch Perfect 2, yes. which was one of the biggest sequels of the summer, as a matter of fact. 
to catch up, we actually saw the first Pitch Perfect for the first time a couple months back. And we really enjoyed it. We, I thoroughly enjoyed it. We were very... I was... I was entertained. surprised. Absolutely. It was quite fun and enjoyable. Loved the cast. Loved the chemistry. Mm. What did you think of Pitch Perfect 2? Well, I also liked the story. I was quite disappointed in this film it was not as funny and surprising as the first one Mm. i mean we got exposed to this different world in the first one yes we had a show like glee but this was different yeah i feel the rivals in this film were great in the beginning i feel at certain points they may have been a little stereotypical of the german culture talking about the germans yeah that that they're opponents now they're actually played by germans well i just felt like some of the things that they were doing might not have actually been authentic german characteristics i Mm. mean from what i have been exposed to germans are highly intelligent Mm. germans only uh, you know they're nothing like me they speak only if they have something very important to say Mm. um and they choose their words very carefully and i feel like oh and they're gorgeous people of course um and i feel like some of the things just weren't accurate in this depiction of the german people Uh, the worst part is they didn't stay consistent with the quality of the rivals throughout the film the rivals kind of fell flat at the end and Mm. that was really disappointing for me because that's not what they would have done what do you mean that's not what they would that's not what germans would have done and Uh, i don't believe it you know at all you're talking about the performance they did yes that was that was like you know it was like the writers said oh let's go ahead and give them this to do and we'll give this to the other team and that's how that team will win and it was just like the other team could have yeah. won if they kept the Germans consistent. It, it's definitely it does fizzle in the end. I, I agree with you. And and really, I think what one of the things you're trying to say is it didn't feel like the the Germans as opponents were all that intimidating or, or, or their performance wasn't something that felt exceptional. Like and you didn't worry about the the Bellas and yeah. their ability to outperform them. And that was just bad writing. Mm. It wasn't anyone else's fault. Yeah, yeah. This film is a, a, a triple F rated movie. It's actually Elizabeth Banks who directed it this time, and it was written by two women whose names I don't have in front of me. I apologize. I am kind of with you there. I agree with you about the third act. There is something about it. It's it's fine. It's it's an enjoyable film. If you just want something to escape and, you know, have a fluffy night, you know, it definitely will serve that purpose. It doesn't do anything to really improve on or build upon the previous movie. It definitely doesn't have much uh fresh or original ideas there's a couple flourishes that elizabeth banks does as a director like instead of a a training montage she has a training collage which is interesting but uh and also thankfully the anna camp character who was the bitch of the group that i had problems with from the previous movie she's mostly left out having graduated i believe from the college and kind of pursuing her own life so she's, she has about 10, 15 minutes of screen time in this movie. And that's, to me, that's a good thing. You know, Rebel Wilson is still hilarious. Uh, oh, Anna yeah. Kendrick is a great lead. 
You know, I love Anna Kendrick. The girls, most of them are kind of one-dimensional characters that have, like, you know, funny lines here or there. They're not really fleshed out. Uh, we don't see a lot of dimension in the story. And it is a little bit of a letdown. It actually makes me worried for Pitch Perfect 3, which is supposed to actually be the worst of the three. What? Really? It is. Oh, um, my gosh. I just, you know, my my expectations have definitely been diminished. So we'll see, and we'll probably talk about it when we catch up with it. But it's a, a bit of a, it's not going to be ever one of the greatest sequels ever made in terms of, you know, when people talk about sequels. There's a list no for one, us best sequels. Oh, we'll get there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Pitch Perfect 2 will definitely not be in that conversation. Mm-hmm. So next we saw... District 13, and we did that on DVD as well. Yes, this is a French action film, which hit mm. theaters in the States in 2006, but I think it came out in France in 2004, 2005. Uh, this is actually the film that introduced parkour to the world, actually. And it stars the guy who created parkour, and I believe has like oh, um, schools and all that based around parkour. David Bell, I believe, is his name. It's set in an alternate future that's kind of uh, dystopian, France. I like how they get to the point about what kind of dystopia it is with just yeah. one slide of text and yeah. that's it. Yeah. That's all you need. And then, so he lives in this cordoned off area called District uh, 13 in in France. It's crime ridden. It's it's very dangerous. Cyril Raffelli, who's a former stuntman, he stars as a cop whose mission is to infiltrate the this this district because a weapon of mass destruction has been gotten into the wrong hands and he must retrieve or disarm this weapon. Shanna, I showed this movie to you. I've been a fan of this movie for years. Uh, What did you think of the film? Well, I was so pleasantly surprised by this film. Now, I know we're all about watching with subtitles. However... They speak really freaking fast in this film. And mm. so you you kind of have to really be paying attention. And sometimes that can take away from watching what's actually going on. But mostly it was a really great film. Beautiful choreography. It, it's definitely, you know, another one of those man's world film. There's mm. like one female yeah. character. Yeah, yeah. But and she's the victim and all that. But she's not your typical damsel in distress. That's true. She's not like, oh my god, oh my god. She's like, fuck you. I'm not going down without a fight. And she yeah. curses and she spits and she kicks and she smacks and she Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So it was like, okay, we only get one girl, but this is what, what she does. So right, right. okay. That was really good. That was good. Yeah. And you know what? There was something about the French doing the whole damsel in distress thing that didn't feel offensive to me. Mm. And maybe that's because it, it was an authentic saving. You're talking about the fact that she plays his sister? Yes. Okay. I like that it was his sister too. That means okay. no sex. So that was great. Oh, that is an interesting point. Mm-hmm. I didn't maybe think about that. Maybe that's why I was okay with it. Like no. that. Because if it was if if it was if it was about that, then it would just be the same kind of fucking film with beautiful action choreography. Mm. So yeah, um, I loved it. 
I recommend it. I think it's great. I think, you know, Luc Besson wrote this, co-wrote this film. He did not direct it. And I think it's the last good film that Luc Besson has touched. In, in touched. creatively, I mean, writing or directing. You know, he did Valerian last last year, which I thought was oh, yeah. terrible. Um, and I wasn't a fan of Lucy. I know you're a fan of Lucy, but I wasn't I a am, fan actually. of Lucy a couple years ago. I thought that was really not good. And really, Fifth Element's his last great film that he's directed. But God, he co-wrote, that's amazing. He co-wrote this film. And I don't think the thing is, <laughs> yeah, you really don't come to this movie for the, the story as much, even though the story is fine and serviceable. It's not terrible. You come to the film for the action choreography. The action choreography is jaw-dropping, outstanding. I mean, you will see guys who are incredibly lean and incredibly fit just run and jump through small spaces with such ease. You will not believe. It made me want like I assumed there were Jackie Chan like outtakes you know where surely these people failed and biffed it several times or something but it is um, incredible and I think you know still 12 to 15 years later well it's 2006 when it hit the states so yeah over 10 years later I think it still stands up as some of the best action choreography you will have seen in the past 20 years really I, I highly recommend it. I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. What was it you said about 10 minutes into the movie? Oh, my God. I don't remember. What did I say? Do you remember? Yeah, you said, oh, my God, this is better than any American film. Yes. Oh, my gosh, because, you know, we had watched Bad Boys 2 a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And just so much isms, <laughs> you know, sexism, racism, uh. all those things. And we watched this. And, yes, it's it's all white people. But... Like, they're not being any of the isms. And when yeah. somebody catcalls this girl, she, like, punches that nose. And there's just, like, blood. So, yeah, very exciting. I, I really like this film. If we could have more action films like this, that would be super. Yeah. All right, so that's our Week in Review. So let's get to our main event which is the Academy Award nominees. So, woohoo! Very exciting. So, a couple weeks ago, the 90th Academy Awards nominees were announced. And what we're going to do is we're not going to go through all the awards. We will Oh my god. When I turn 40, it's going to be the 100th. Okay. Oscar Awards. That's oh. so exciting. All right. Lovely. I'm glad that occurred to you. Um, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to go through the, some of the major awards, the acting awards mostly, and share our thoughts about the nominees and who we think should win. And if there's anybody that we feel like was snubbed that should have been actually nominated or t- taken into consideration, as well as quick general thoughts about the uh, nominees. There are three films we have not seen. Mm. Out of all the films that are nominated, we have not seen Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Darkest Hour, and Phantom Thread. I have seen Dunkirk, so I can speak to that. Shanna has not. But we those, those three are the ones that neither of us have seen. So it's hard to speak to those movies. However, I would be tremendously surprised if we were, when we watched those movies, we were to think... 
fuck, we're wrong about our picks for Best Picture. Those, that movie, Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, or, or even Phantom Thread, that one's even better. Let's start with, first of all, Best Animated fe- Feature. Ah, yes, let's talk about that. Okay, so here are the nominees for Best Animated Feature in alphabetical order. We have The Boss Baby, The Breadwinner, Coco, Ferdinand, Loving Vincent. Right. Now, you may be least aware of The Breadwinner and Loving Vincent. I will tell you that The Breadwinner is from the creators of Song of the Sea. God, I need to see that. How can I see that? And which, you know, that's been available to stream for a while now. And Loving Vincent, as I understand it, is about the last days of Vincent van Gogh, and it's told through oil painting. That's so funny because we say Vincent van Gogh in South Africa. Not quite the point. But (laughs) it's, uh, you know, animated through oil painting, which in itself is kind of exceptional and intriguing. So my first thought is... Interesting. The Boss Baby got more got nominated over the Lego Batman movie. I have a thought about that. I feel like in the animation category, it feels like they're desperate sometimes, that they're just trying to scrape, you know, the bottom of the barrel. And hmm. Boss Baby had a nice story, but it wasn't, like, amazing. It wasn't fantastic. That's right, you saw The Boss Baby. It, it was original, and it's a good movie to watch, you know, if you have a child and you're about to have another one, you know, to help the kid be okay with another kid coming into the house. Was it as bad as it looked? No, because it was a cute story. Uh-huh. It was a cute story, but it wasn't amazing. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't as bad as how I feel about cars. Okay. But it was, wasn't amazing. Was it as good as the other nominees? Or was it better than Lego Batman? I don't think it was better than Lego Batman. Mm. I don't think so. So I assumed as much. Not to be an ass, but I assumed as much. I, I kind of felt like it was a fair assumption to say that Lego Batman was should have probably gotten some recognition there. We haven't seen Ferdinand, and we certainly haven't seen The Breadwinner or Loving Vincent. That's played more art house or uh, festivals. What do you think should be the best animated film? Coco, hands down. The amount of detail and the authenticity in that storytelling of The Day of the Dead um, and the fact that that hasn't really made it to mainstream in this animated fashion i think that they need to win the performances were great oh it was just fucking gorgeous and the music was amazing yeah i absolutely agree coco you know having not seen loving vincent or the breadwinner well honestly i personally haven't seen any of the other nominees but it didn't look like ferdinand or the boss baby were it didn't look like i was underestimating those movies they look like they're fine and okay films they do not add to the medium of animation. That's fair to say. I would expect so. Coco, and that's so. That's the best animated feature category. Let's go on to the acting. Starting with supporting acting, best supporting actor. The nominees are Willem Dafoe for the Florida Project, Woody Harrelson for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, 
Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water, Christopher Plummer, All the Money in the World, and Sam Rockwell, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Sam Rockwell! Woo! Is that your pick? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I, I thought that that character was just great, and I thought that he really did it justice with his performance. I find it a bit, like, surprising that Christopher Plummer, someone who was digitally in, uh, added to a film largely last minute, that he got the nomination over anybody else um, and, and sort of forced someone else to be snubbed. I, I do find that very surprising and questionable. Who do you believe got snubbed? Well, that is an excellent question. I'm not sure I... I'm not really sure who. I mean, like, you know... I know that Andy Serkis has, has been one person that people have been championing for years every time a Planet of the Apes movie comes out. However... I'm one of those people. However, War for the Planet of the Apes is probably yeah. not the best movie to be championing him for. Mm-hmm. I, I think interest has waned over the past few months about that movie. I don't think it was it was the best of the trilogy anyway. So, you know, but I know that, you know, people have been championing him for a nomination in in any of his digital performances. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure who... I'm sure there's someone I'm forgetting. I'm just not sure. Maybe Idris Elba for Molly's Game. I don't know. Well, you're looking at me with a funny look. No, Idris Elba for Mandela makes sense. Which I'm sure he got a nomination you for know. lead actor. But not, not for this one, I don't think. Interesting. Yeah, so I... Th- I And we haven't seen the Florida Project. That really hasn't really played in our area. That was one of our, like... Biggest regrets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We really want to see it, and it's not available to stream, so we're kind of at a loss with that film for the time being. Watch it win something, and then it's available to stream. I would say maybe I might agree with you with Sam Rockwell or go with Richard Jenkins in The Shape of Water. There's very little in The Shape of Water that I think is worthy of the award that it's nominated for. Mm. But Richard Jenkins is a great uh, actor. He does give a a fine performance on that film for sure. I I feel like Sam Rockwell, the the character he plays, needs recognition. Mm. So let's talk about Best Supporting Actress. We have Mary J. Blige from Mudbound, Allison Janney for I, Tonya, Leslie Manville for Phantom Thread, Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer for The Shape of Water. What are your thoughts about the Best Supporting Actress category? I feel like this is kind of all over the place. However, I do have a regret not being able to watch Mudbound right now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Octavia Spencer is like one of my favorite people, mm. but I don't know if Shape of Water is in general. I feel like Shape of Water got too many nominations. Okay. And then we have not seen I Tonya yet. We have not seen Phantom Thread yet. Mm-hmm. I really feel that Laurie Metcalf's performance does mothers around the world justice Hmm. and so i feel like she needs to get it 
Yeah, I mean, it's tough having kind of been limited by only seeing two out of the three films so far. I, Tonya is actually now available in our area to see quite quite thoroughly, so maybe we'll be able to check, catch up with that. And Mudbound's available on Netflix. That is a Netflix production. Uh, so it's it's kind of our bad for not catching up with that. But I do agree, Laurie Metcalf, uh, especially over Octavia Spencer in The Shape of Water, Laurie Metcalf gives one of the finest supporting performances I've seen mm. in 2017. And she, I think she definitely got shafted for the Golden Globe. No offense to, to the winner, but... I, I I was very surprised that she did not win, and I really hope she gets the recognition this time. Octavia Spencer, I've talked about when we did the review for Shape of Water, my thoughts on Octavia Spencer. She's a fantastic actress, mm-hmm. but The Shape of Water is not a showcase for Octavia Spencer's talents. She is very much a supporting player in that film, and not in the way where she is giving support to the main performance in 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 that actorly sense that's a very interesting uh, good point she's yeah she's just the friend who's the black girl who's got who's the sassy black girl right and she has maybe do like a sassy black girl though (laughs) (laughs) especially if octavia is her (laughs) sure she would obvious obviously she's the go-to woman for that i think there is one scene one scene i am willing to bet you will be the oscar clip in the entire movie and it comes late in the movie that's really all she's got and i don't know i all she's given i should say so it is I, all she's given. I, I really don't. I really yeah. don't think she was the one that should have gotten that nomination. Really, maybe a, maybe one of the cast members of The Beguiled should have gotten some attention and recognition. Well, who would that be? Well, I mean, pick a pick a. I mean, Kirsten Dunst, maybe. I thought she was the main actress. It's kind of hard well, to even tell when there's Nicole Kidman, five of them. You know, Nicole Kidman, Elle Fanning, you know, pick, you know, you have your pick there easily. Okay, good point. Yeah, so All right. So moving on to the lead acting categories, we have for best actor Timothy Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name, Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread, Daniel Kaluuya from Get Out. Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour, and Denzel Washington getting a surprising nomination for Roman J. Israel Esquire. I didn't see a trailer for that film. Uh, we did see one trailer. We saw the trailer once, actually, oh. during the fall. I probably leaned over to you and said, that thing's getting a terrible buzz. Um, and it did. it did. It did not do... Did it even come to us? Yeah. I think it, it, it really did not do well in theaters, oh. and it did not do well with critics. And Denzel was probably the only good thing about mm. the movie because it's fucking Denzel Washington. Oh yes. But I so his nomination was probably a huge surprise. I have a feeling James Franco was probably going to get the nomination with the um, the disaster artist, mm. but. But karma's a bitch, and when you <laughs> snub the person who gave you that character to be no 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 i wasn't going to say that at all oh you weren't okay no 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 there's been some some problematic information that's come to light with james franco of past behavior that i think probably cost him the nomination you go ahead and google it don't ask me and you don't have to google it right now i'm so gonna do it um (laughs) 
But, you know, I, I think he was the expected nominee for that. And even then, you know, oh, by the way, Tom Hanks probably could have been a Best Supporting Actor for The Post, just so you know. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. But going back to the Best Actor, you know, I don't know. It could have been practically anybody in anything, you know. What's his name in The Big Sick? You know, might have been a really good nominee. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I just find that mm-hmm. out, uh, very odd. Who do you think, what are your thoughts on the award and who should win? You know, if I have to see another fucking actor play a European historical person. Oh, Gary Oldman with Darkest win. Hour. Mm. I love Gary Oldman, but if I have to see that fucking role get recognition one more fucking time, I'm going to lose my fucking shit. So, that's how I feel about that. Now, who do I really want to win? Now, to be honest, we have not seen Call Me By Your Name. We haven't seen any of these except Get Out. I really want Daniel to win. Yeah. Daniel Kluwer. I really want him to win. I feel like there's so much power in his facial expressions, the subtle facial expressions he was making Mm. in that film. And I recently watched Black Mirror, and he is in episode two of season one. Mm. And I see where he is in that episode. And I look at where he is in Get Out, and I feel like, oh my God, please give this man an Oscar. Mm. That's how I feel. You know, Gary Oldman is considered the front runner for a film that we haven't seen yet, and his transformation as Winston uh, Churchill apparently it's um, up there with his his best performances in an in a exceptional career mm-hmm. and so you know there's there's probably something to his uh lead in the horse race here but i mean it's hard to say when we've only seen get out and it's hard for me as a result to disagree with you about daniel kalua that said, he is up against frickin' Daniel Day-Lewis and Gary frickin' Oldman. So it's really tough competition. I will also be pissed if Daniel Day-Lewis wins. Wow. Yeah. And, his, and potentially his final role. I really don't give a shit. <laughs> that is how, like, passionate I am about the person I want to win. Fair enough. Yeah. So Best Actress. We have Sally Hawkins from The Shape of Water, Frances McDormand from Three Billboards, Margot Robbie from I, Tonya, Saoirse Ronan from Lady Bird, and Meryl Streep from The Post. Any thoughts? Uh, do you feel like this is a pretty pretty good collection, or did someone get sh- uh, snubbed that you really thought needed the recognition? haven't seen I, Tonya, but I do feel like this collection makes more sense. Okay. Each woman represented here has done something very important in their portrayal of the character. I mean, Sally Hawkins is doing a phenomenal job depicting, you know, uh, people that are mute, women that are mute, and how that, you know, can turn someone into an outsider. I mean, she is important. You've got Frances McDormand. I mean, hell, this woman is amazing. I want to be this woman should something ever happen similarly to this character uh how she transforms herself i mean i don't and by transform i mean put yourself into that that position of what do you do to Mm. get the attention okay and how far do you take revenge okay and it's 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 a fantastic question and i feel like she performed very well i don't think she ever takes revenge she just does something to kick them in the ass revenge, and get attention. Revenge is never like a one-step thing. 
I can't say anything about Margot Robbie, but I do. I am fond of her. Yeah. And uh, Meryl Streep, I mean, it would be stupid if she wasn't nominated for whatever she acted in this year. Now, Saoirse Ronan, I remember, you know, the time where she first went on stage at an awards ceremony, and I don't know if it was the Global, I mean, the, the Golden Globes or if it was the Oscars, but she was with someone else. It might have been Dakota Fanning and she came on stage and the first thing that came out of her mouth was oh my gosh all these people I'm I'm so nervous and now you look at her in Lady Bird and I just I really feel like she deserves it hmm well we actually have seen practically all of the nominees this time Margot Robbie and I Tanya being the exception which is unfortunate because we've been trying to see that for like a month or so I I think as good as Saoirse Ronan is, in this case, she is second to Frances McDormand and her performance. Mm. I mean, this is a definitely a, uh, a Me Too and a Time's Up performance, you know, mm. uh, for sure. Uh, Meryl Streep, I think, you know, she's kind of a perennial uh, nominee, unfortunately. So it actually makes it difficult when she actually does give a above average for above Meryl Streep average performance to <laughs> to uh, to uh, for it to get attention but I do think that she does do something different and interesting in Catherine Graham you know uh, we are talking the greatest actress greatest living actress that we have right now so she's never terrible she's never mediocre but um, she is doing some interesting stuff as Catherine Graham I feel like you know a woman who is not confident who's very insecure in a workplace that is all surrounded by men and being undermined by men and finding her voice i think that that's very interesting i think she does well with that i really think sally hawkins is the one that i i i think is good i think it's fine but i really would not want to see her be the winner she's mm. definitely worthy of a nomination but francis is my pick for sure for mm. three billboards well and i would be happy if francis won as well yeah yeah although i i am also like you very fond of margot robbie i love her in practically everything i see her in even suicide squad i think she's the best thing about <laughs> that movie so yeah at any rate yeah let's look at best director let's get a harlequin <clears throat> movie we have christopher nolan from dunkirk jordan peele for get out greta gerwig for ladybird Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. Uh, is there anybody that you feel was left out, or what sort of thoughts do you have about the best director? It is interesting that they didn't include the director for Three Billboards. Mm-hmm. Martin McDonough. Yes. Now, I, I can't really comment on anything else, really. Well, the, you've seen all the films except Dunkirk and Phantom Thread, and I've, I've actually seen Dunkirk. So you've seen three out of five of the films. Here's what I can say about this. I think that The Shape of Water, yes, while it deserves recognition in the nomination category, the nomination side of things, I really don't think that Del Toro should get an Oscar for directing in this one. Hmm. I would have said give him everything that he's nominated for in Pan's Labyrinth because that was just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do not think 
The Shape of Water is phenomenal. And I do not think that the directing was phenomenal. Mm. Now, Ladybird, that's some fucking directing. And Get Out is fantastic. So I would be happy with either of those winning. Yeah, I think you have some fighting words as far as Del Toro, his direction in Shape of Water. I dis- I kind of disagree. I think it's definitely worthy of not the nomination. It's very, well, yes. it's very, it's it's Del Toro for fuck's sakes. But I think uh, out of all these Phantom Threads, the only one I haven't seen, I have no doubt of PTA's talents as a director that it was probably a worthy nomination. But, and I, I have issues with Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk. Maybe it's more of an editing thing than a directing thing. But he's probably the one of the five that I would have probably subbed out for someone else like maybe Martin McDonough or, you know, Denis Villeneuve for Blade Runner 2049, mm, who that completely been got shut out for the most. I would have given a uh, writing nomination for that film as well. I don't think it got, it didn't get a writing nomination. So Denis Villeneuve, I maybe would have nominated instead for Best Director. Uh, maybe there's probably a couple others that I probably would have put in instead. Not necessarily Spielberg for the post or yeah. anything like that. But my pick is, uh, you know, I would be I would be thrilled if Greta Gerwig won. I think that yeah. would be huge, oh right? Oh my god, so fucking cool. Yeah, but it might be Jordan Peele for Get Out, you know, but I would not be upset if Greta Gerwig won either. Mm. I think either of those two would be huge. I think won. those two people have really added to the directing evolution of film. I, I you know, well, that's how I feel. Their work certainly added to the year, uh, you know, and the the texture of 2017 in film and that's what i feel should be awarded yeah certainly and they're they're very well directed okay so Mm -hmm. last category best picture here we go call me by your name darkest hour dunkirk get out ladybird phantom thread the post the shape of water Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh, my God. There's some really good picks in here. Okay, so we have nine nominees. Before we continue, Mm. they could have up to ten nominees. A, do you think out of the films that you have seen, one is not worthy of the nomination and something else should have been? Or do you think there should have been a tenth nominee and what would that have been? I think they could have squished... Blade Runner mm. in there. Yeah. I mean, I know awesome. that they're getting nominated for some some visual awards. Yeah, not many though. I think they only got like two nominations. But I feel like it's a it's a good mix. I feel like it's a good representation. It's not bad at all. Mm-hmm. Would I have died if Star Wars got nominated for its beauty? Maybe I'd, it would have been nice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's always nice if Star Wars gets recognition. Well, particularly this one, which I feel is arguably, apparently very arguably, yes. if you watch the Depends internet. what side you're on here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would say it is the best in the history of mm. Star Wars because it 
is trying to do the most mm-hmm. in all the, the films ever in Star Wars history. So, And it becomes a fantastic sci-fi fantasy film as a result. So that could be cool. But also Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a film, uh, you know, that's a really fantastic sequel. And extraordinary. Do I think something needs to be taken out? Not really. I mean, does Dunkirk really need to be there? I feel like every year if there's a war film, it's in there. (laughs) Well, we got Darkest Hour also. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. And with that, what is your pick? God, this is hard. How I always look at the Oscars is... Like, if okay, so taking Best Director, I'm really all about Get Out and Lady Bird. So I feel like, okay, if Get Out gets Director, Lady Bird needs to get Best Picture. Mm. Like, that's usually how my mind works. Oh, okay. I, I really feel for Best Picture this year, it's, it's really, it's Get Out, Lady Bird, Three Billboards. All three of those are really important. The Post has commentary to the times we're in right now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about Call Me By Your Name. It, it probably has something really important in it too. That's why it's there. Those three films, Get Out, Lady Bird, Three Billboards, I would be happy if either of those won. Uh, like, what do I think should win? Then it takes Lady Bird out. So oh. then I'm left with Get Out and three billboards because those two are the most in tune with the filmmaking medium and making commentary about what's, you know... About our time? About our time. Okay. So I feel like one of those needs to win. Uh, if it's The Shape of Water, I'm going to be pissed because <laughs> because that's, that's the love letter to film. You can nominate no a love le- letter yeah. to film. Yeah. But, you know, unless it's 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 phenomenal right and it's it's love and it you know hugo would have been a good oh hugo should have won so yeah. that would have been a Instead good of the artist that would have been a good love letter film to win right. this is not the love letter film to win okay so first of all i will say the shape of water and dunkirk are the the two films i feel like in the past couple months have been the most overrated i think they're fine films they're not even in the top 10 for me, though. I'm really thrilled that Get Out got nomination for Best Picture. That's not That was sort of a long shot for me as a likelihood, partially because it's a horror film, and horror films don't often get nominated. But I'm thrilled that it, got, it did get nominated. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's actually as far as, as someone should be, should be with the film. You know, just absolutely thrilled that it actually was nominated as much as it was. That said, I'm kind of with you. For me, this this is a rare year where there's three films that I think are equally good that I wouldn't be upset with if one. I think Post, The Post, is a great film, but mm. is a is a slightly distant fourth for me. You know, where I'd be hmm. mildly disappointed if it won over Lady Bird, Get Out, or Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. That said, Three Billboards is my pick just slightly more than the others. Yeah. You know, if I think about last year when they announced that La La Land won by accident. Yeah. 
I remember being so incredibly angry that Moonlight didn't win because I felt like it was the most important film of the year. Sure. And they were going to give it to a love letter. And I just, I really hope that it goes okay this year. Well, I mean, you know, that said, for me at that time, it was between La La Land and Moonlight. And Moonlight barely edged out La La Land for me. La La Land was the populist choice. Moonlight was the more serious and weighty choice. Well, I feel like the Golden Globes can be like happy popular. And I feel like the Oscars is like the academic side of things. Like that's what it should be. Well, it shouldn't be like, oh, this is the most popular. No, it should be what's the most important. Yeah, it's not perfect because Miss Daisy won one. Yeah. So. Did you have any other general thoughts or observations about the nominees? Could you go to Best Cinematography? Okay. Thank you. Okay. So Best Cinematography, I wanted to talk about... You've got The Shape of Water, Mudbound, Dunkirk, Darkest Hour, Blade Runner. I really feel like Blade Runner needs to win this one. Cinematography is all about lighting. And in Blade Runner 2, I mean, they invent... A kind of lighting or evolve a kind of lighting think of a disco ball when the light hits it and it shows those little reflections around the room what they did in Blade Runner 2 and this isn't a spoiler because it's just a, a comment on technicality what they did was they took that idea that principle and in a world that has no sunlight they created sunlight in an enclosed space and it felt like the warmth of sunlight. It felt like the movement of sunlight. It felt like sunlight on crack, you know, happy gorgeousness. And so, you know, not only that, but the color symbolism in this film and the color evolution of this film, I mean, this is the film that needs to win cinematography, in my opinion. Okay, it's hard to argue with that thought process. Can you go to costume design? Okay, so for costume design, we have Beauty and the Beast, not the animated, Darkest Hour, Phantom Thread, The Shape of Water, and Victoria and Abdul. I feel like Victoria and Abdul is going to win this because it's usually Victorian era things that usually win because it's got the most seamstress work. Hmm. But uh, if Beauty and the Beast wins, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> oh, really? I, yeah. I actually think it has good reason. Oh, you be, do? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think the costume on that is one of the tasteful things that you could point to on that film. <laughs> Did you have any other thoughts? Uh, screenplay? Could you go Original screenplay? Yeah. Oh, and very briefly, music, it would be great if The Shape of Water got that. What, be- for score or what? Yeah, oh. because I felt like that was beautiful. Mm. Like, that was unquestionable. Anyway, for Best Original Screenplay, you've got The Big Sick, Get Out, Ladybird, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. And this is all really cool, but I really liked The Big Sick, and it would be nice if that got acknowledgement. I'm all for, you know, oh, we got three awards, but it's also nice to share the love, and I, I it would be nice if The Big Sick got a bit of love, because that was a really well-written film. It was, but that's some stiff competition. I really yes. think Lady Bird and Three Billboards, even Get Out, the, what makes them so exceptional is partially the scripts. Interesting. Who do you think should get it? Uh, one of those three. Okay. Uh, let me just do some quick 
rundown things. Um, here's the breakdown of films that earned multiple nominations, starting from the bottom, working our up, way up, and thusly movies that you should be catching up with if you haven't already. We have at tied at four nominations: Get Out, Call Me by Your Woo-hoo! Name, and Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Oh, that's great! Five nominations for Lady Bird. Six nominations tied for Phantom Thread and Darkest Hour. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri has seven nominations. Holy cow. Dunkirk has eight nominations. How? Well, you haven't seen the film. (laughs) The Shape of Water has a whopping 13 nominations. Now, here's the thing. The Shape of Water just came under the elite of films that have been nominated the most in award history, okay? The record is 14. It was one nomination away from being under a small number of films that have been nominated the most. There's only three movies that have been nominated 14 times. That's All About Eve, Titanic, and La La Land. There's a bit of Oscar trivia for you. If The Shape of Water, however, wins 12 of its 13 nominations... God, I hope not. It will hold the record for the most wins by a single film, which is 11. What film has that record? So who won that? Well, Titanic did get 11 awards. So that's the one. Okay. That's the one that holds the record. So, anyway, just some quick notes there, food for thought. Who do you Show. want to win? Yeah, what are your thoughts on the Oscar Who nominees? don't you want to win? Mm. I don't mean to be negative, but this is where we get to have opposite opinions. Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Now, we are making this a huge episode. We really need to What's get... What's the Oscar episode? We'll be quick with the next section. We need to get to uh, that section, which is film faves. Now... For those who are not familiar, Film Faves is our opportunity to share our 12 favorite movies about a particular topic or year. Why 12? Well, generally because most lists have 5 or 10 and uh, honorable mentions, and we just cut right to it. We don't even do honorable mentions. These are our 12 favorite movies, a dozen favorite movies. And uh, generally, it helps give you an idea of our taste in film, but also hopefully it exposed you to movies that you've never heard of before. And as such, we try to direct you where you can find these movies available to stream. And highlighting particularly Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and HBO Now. That said, it is uh, shocking how many movies are not often available on those several streaming platforms. Um, but when there is one, we do try to mention it. For me, in this episode, I only have one movie that's available to stream. So it's a little shitty. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, will, I will mention it um, mm-hmm. at one point. Shanna, I'll, uh, I want to share with you a few thoughts how I formulated my list and stuff. Because it's interesting. We're going back 90 years worth of history. God, for that's awesome. our Best Picture winners. Movies that won Best Picture by the Academy Awards. Dating back to 1927, uh, 28. For me, my oldest movie goes back to the 1940s. And I almost have one movie for every decade. I have one film from the 40s, one from the 50s. The 60s, oddly enough, I have zero films. No sound of music? No. What? The decade that had the most for me? was the 70s and the 90s with three movies from each decade. 
I had one from the 80s, two from the last decade, and one from this decade. What does your list look like in Well, that if sense? I knew we were making pie charts, I would have done that. <laughs> because I do like visuals. Pie charts, Venn diagrams, <laughs> graphs. Okay, so <laughs> it looks like, you know, the oldest film I have here is The Sound of Music, but that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate the older films. So from the 1960s. Sound of Music is 1965. Mm-hmm. And... You know, like I have favorites like Harvey and Arsenic and Old Lace, and I think there were a couple that I really enjoyed that were nominated but weren't winners. Right. I think that's important to say too. <laughs> that would be a different list. Right. And it, it would be we'll a get lot to that harder. someday. But anyway, maybe that can be next year. So it looks like I've got 160s, 170s. Interesting. I think I've got four 90s, one from 2008, and then the rest are. Recent. Interesting. In the 20-teens. Recency bias, I see. Okay. All right. Well, was it difficult for you to go back, going back over 90 movies or 290 movies, was it hard for you to find 12 favorites? Or was it pretty easy because you had freaking 90 movies to draw from? I think I ended up with maybe 15. And then, you know, got it down to 12. It was also disappointing and eye-opening for me that I hadn't seen a lot of films. And although I had intentions to see films that I was curious about, there were a lot I was curious about. Sure. Um, there was no time this week. This, yeah. this past two weeks for us have been killer crazy. Yeah, they've been hell weeks for sure. I've seen all but 21 of the winners in all the entire history of the Academy Awards. And I still ended up having a hard time compiling my list. And even organizing the list too trying to decide like where to put them all in because some of them i kind of like they're they're equals to me you know well i feel like if i if i say 12 years a slave is my favorite film i mean like does that mean i get off on slavery i just (laughs) it's like and maybe that's that's like white guilt i don't know what that is Maybe that's just empathy. I mm. don't know. But it certainly um, would say something about your taste in film, too. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, which isn't a bad thing. You know, your, your, uh, your taste might be more highbrow and, and interesting. So, well, and looking at my list, it looks like I kind of seesaw between, oh, I really enjoyed this. Let's put that at number one. Oh, but this is really important, and I understand number two. Uh, and this is, you know, important. But terror, like like I will only watch it three times in my life. That's going to be at number ten. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I I kind of I'm all over the place. Well, share with us what's your number twelve. My number twelve is The Godfather from 1972. This is the crime. This is the mafia. This is the you will never escape your family film for everyone out there. Well, and and it's also one of the greatest films ever made. God, this thing is long as fuck, though. <laughs> it's like, got to remember, I watched this, the first time I watched this, I think I was 15, maybe 16, and then I watched it again at, like, 23, and uh-huh. now I need to watch it again to see where I am and how I feel again. But I do think it's, like, one of those, it's an important category film. My number 12 is The Best Years of Our Lives, my 1940s pick. This is from 1946. Uh, this is... An exceptional film for a World War II movie. Oh, that's why I haven't watched it. Okay. Well, no, you're going to misunderstand. Let me finish. Okay. Uh, This is a movie about people coming home from the war and readjusting to life at home. 
and you you follow three or four different characters and it's really something that this movie came out in 1946 you know just a year or two after the war ended it's a very impressive film and i think one of the performances is actually a non-professional actor who was who was hired because he actually lost his hands in the war and he gives one of the most touching performances ever and it's really wonderful film to see this is another one of those movies that is criminally underseen these days and almost forgotten and is almost just a footnote in oscar history because it did uh the actor who i'm actually referring to and his name is escaping me he won he's the only actor to win two perform two awards for the same performance that is a record that nobody will ever be able to beat. <laughs> um, I believe his name is Harold Russell, if I remember correctly. But it is is not a short film. It's 172 minutes, but it is it's a drama that is absolutely worth seeking out. It also stars Myrna Loy and Frederick March and Dana Andrews, who are all great golden age um, actors and actresses in their own way. I think this is a film that if you do seek it out, you will be rewarded and very surprised as I was, and also taking into consideration the context and when it came out, it's very surprising. So that's the best years of our lives. That's my number 12. My number 11 is Slumdog Millionaire from 2008, and what a film about chance, opportunity, and action. Like action follow through action not like action parkour action you mean, I mean taking like, action yeah that one and i really like that they took this person's story of his life and put it in the format of who wants to be a millionaire and that was how they unfolded each piece of his life not that it's a biography or anything but you're talking about the character yeah okay yes that is a very dynamic film we might hear more about that in a little bit. My number 11 is Gandhi from 1982 by Richard Attenborough, starring Ben Kingsley. This is another epic. <laughs> For some reason, three hour movies or close to three hour movies often win. But this is probably one of the most inspiring movies I have ever seen. It is a standard biopic in some ways. But its scale is definitely David Lean influenced and uh, is, is, is really something. And I think most people have obviously have heard of this movie, of course, heard of Gandhi. But I bet most people haven't taken the time to see this movie. And um, they really should. Because when you watch Ben Kingsley's performance... And the evolution of Gandhi as we know him to be, it is truly awe-inspiring to see what this man did and what he didn't do in order to accomplish what he did. It's a great film. It's a great biopic, probably among the top five biopics ever made, I would, I would probably say. And it's worth seeking out. My number 10 is 12 Years a Slave, and that's from 2013, and this is what I was talking about, was like, okay, if you 
if you like this or you like Into Slavery. I think the performances are really jaw-droppingly, stunningly amazing. Uh, I'm talking about Lupita Nyong'o. <laughs> oh, not really. Jotel Ejiofor? <laughs> yeah, no, he's great. But <laughs> yeah. I have a total crush on Lupita Nyong'o. So I, I just, I thought that that was amazing. And the visuals and the symbolism in the visuals was astute. And I felt like I was trapped in this world. Mm. And that deserves winning um, a film that can do that for you. Well, it's a very difficult watch. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not torture. It's not painful. It's oh, just, I thought it was torture. Well, in the sense that, you know, you're going through an experience that you never want to experience again. Yeah. It's something like that you probably wouldn't end up having on your list if that was the case. It's well, just, it's, I'm sure it's something that you found to be extremely well depicted and and just unsettling. Yeah. Um, And I made a note here that I will only watch this three times in my life. I've done it once. Okay. Uh, (laughs) You only get two more times. Yeah, I only got two more times. So the next time I will watch it is when Logan is of the age. And the next time I will watch it is when uh, the child that we have is of age. Well, we shall see how well you hold that. That is basically it. I, I think it's one of those films that you know after a few years it's it's um fresh again and you're probably like have cleansed the palate enough that you could probably handle it again and probably what i would do is i would like put the put these two back to back i'd put like schindler's list what? and 12 years a slave that's the worst <laughs> night ever why would you do that you know if you want to gain insight in how humanity has fucked up yeah um, space it out though man <laughs> Good God, you'll want to slit your wrist. No, but then it's done. Uh-huh. It's like ripping the band No, it's a very long band-aid. <laughs> what is your number 10? Is it a band-aid? No, Unforgiven. Uh, from 1992, directed by Clint Eastwood. I think it's his best film that he directed. I recently rewatched this film last year and for the first time in uh, at least a decade or something. And it holds up very well. It's a great meditative Western on violence you know from a man who helped really kind of add to the western genre and violence like with movies like outlaw josie wales and of course the spaghetti westerns good bad and the ugly and such it is one of the most thoughtful and and mature and very well performed westerns i mean this is not you know your searchers cowboys and indians you know, fun stuff. I, I really don't have a high opinion of The Searchers uh, by John Wayne and John Ford. But this is um this is one of the greatest Westerns ever made. And there's definitely deserving its year that it won. And um, it's one of my favorite Westerns. My number nine is No Country for Old Men. Oh, really? The reason it is... Because this is also one of those films that's unsettling for me. Okay. Like, I can't watch this for at least another three years. Really? That's surprising because, I mean, because of what it's about, I would figure that would appeal to you. How would you describe what it's about? Well, it's about a man on the run who, you know, because he encountered some cash, and it's about the hitman that's uh, chasing after him to recover that cash. I feel like this is a very good depiction of a hitman in that. 
it's someone that's very determined, someone that's cold, someone who probably isn't really human. Right. I think that's important to add to my little bucket of award <laughs> award winning films. And isn't this also the same film where, you know, you have this much older generation that, um, that comes from a very respect the elders, respect each other, respect what you have, respect everything around, everyone and everyone around you. And this generation <coughs> is witnessing how that is going completely out the window, according to them. I don't think it's so much about that. Through the Tommy Lee Jones character, I think it's just someone who's seen the world going to hell and he's frightened by it. Well, and I think that there's something about that performance that was appealing to me, about that character's observation that was appealing to me. I will say Anton Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem, is a genuine force of evil. Mm -hmm. If we ever saw one on film. And he's definitely... Like a top villain. Yes, you know? yes. I mean, you just are unsettled every time he's on screen. You do not know what he's capable of. You know, you've got Negan in Walking Dead with the television universe. Universe? And then, <laughs> whatever <laughs> category. And then, you know, you have Javier. And, you know, I don't know what other characters I'd have as evil. I haven't thought about it, but he's definitely one of the top three. Yeah, definitely. All right, my number nine is my one pick that is available to stream. I don't know why so few Best Picture winners are not available to stream right now. Mm. Uh, this is the time for them to be available. But it is The Hurt Locker from 2009 by Catherine Bigelow. Of course. Catherine Bigelow. Uh, it's available, first of all, on Netflix and Hulu. Catherine Bigelow made it you know struck gold here even though she'd been directing for 20 years 25 years prior to this and and made fine films and great films and very different projects a lot of action driven stuff like point break and uh k19 the Widowmaker, or what have you but here she is doing a it's a film about bomb what do you call them bomb disarmers the bomb squad well, no. <laughs> Sorry. But it's about a crew that disables bombs in Iraq. It's absolutely riveting because you don't know if them, if they touch the wrong thing, if it's going to explode. You know, Jeremy Renner, his career really took off with this film. Uh, shortly afterwards, he was in the town, and before you knew it, he was in every franchise being made. <laughs> You know, uh, most notably Hawkeye and the Avengers. But you also have Anthony Mackie, also a future Avenger. He, he stars in it as well, and his career took off because of this film. It is an absolutely riveting and a really great film about one of the things that soldiers end up struggling with is they can't adjust when they come back home. This is, you know, uh, interesting, harkening back to the best years of our lives in 1946. You know, you have another film that kind of looks at that subject in a different way because they're used to the adrenaline, they're used to the rush, they're used to everything that, that they experience when they are deployed and they can't handle the normality of civilized life. And uh, it's, it's a great film. So uh, seek it out on Netflix and Hulu. 
My number eight is Argo from 2012. I had a feeling I might end up on your list, so I left it off of mine. <laughs> okay. Was that your strategy? <laughs> this might go on Shannon, so I don't have to worry about it. This film is based on true events, and I highly recommend it. I, You know, I was in the mood to watch it thinking I was going to – it was an enjoyable fun experience and it's not it's very stressful at times it's enjoyable at times it's enjoyable it has these these sprinkled moments of uh, comedy yeah and kind of taking the film industry and using it to save hostages to save american hostages Mm. that are trapped in tehran and i just there's something about how they use the film industry to save them. It's something about their attitudes and how much fun the that one actor, ben Alan Affleck. Arkin. <laughs> oh. I just I think my favorite part of this film is Alan Arkin and how he's just completely done with the film industry and he's like, oh yeah, this will be good. Fuck the industry. Attitude. Well, Shanna, you should or go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that that is a movie that I enjoy. I, I really like, but didn't quite make my favorites list. Mm-hmm. It's actually one that definitely falls in the something else should have won category uh, for me. But it is definitely a fine film, and you know Ben Affleck did a great job directing that one for sure. Looking so at this, pick. maybe Argo should be lower on my list, but as I said, I was all over oh, the place it's with a good it. film. No, I definitely don't want to bash it. It's a good pick. My next film is from 1976. It is Rocky. For whatever reason, I cannot get Shanna to watch this movie. And Shanna's never going to watch this movie. Why? Shanna gets one. Why is and that? This is Why, is that? One. Why is that? This is the one that no, I'm no, not no. going to watch. War and horror are your one. And westerns. So what category is this? Horror Western? No, it's a sports film. <laughs> okay, I'm really not into sport films. Like, I don't know how I'm going to feel about I, Tonya. Have I ever liked or favorited sport films? We will have to discuss that in Have time. I ever? We will have to discuss that in I don't time. think I ever have. At any rate. It's your turn Not to only speak. is this the most inspirational and feel-good underdog sports film ever made... You know, this is a film that I expected to be overrated, and it actually is damn good. When I first saw it, like, um, almost 20 years ago, it's arguably still the best Rocky movie. Creed is the first movie in the series to actually be a strong contender for that. Sylvester Stallone uh, wrote this film, and it's uh, one of his best performances. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, I mean... What can I say? It's it's a feel-good, fun film, underdog story. It's got everything. It's it's incredibly iconic. You got the training montage. You got the, the score, got to fly now. The, the run-up, the steps, everything. It's Rocky for crying out loud, so I couldn't leave it off my list. I guess I can relate to the running up the steps thing. Mm. When you're training and all of a sudden you... You think you're going to get maybe halfway, and that's going to be great. But then you get to the top, and you're like, oh, my God, I'm not out of breath. This is fucking amazing. Yeah. That is a moment that I think a lot of people can relate to. What's your number seven? It is Forrest Gump from 94. 
And this has got Tom Hanks, Sally Field, Robin Wright, and it's also, you know, a story of someone's life, Tom Hanks in particular, and... Not, not, it's not about Tom Hanks. I mean, it's not. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's based on uh, When a does book. that film come out? <laughs> it's based on a book called Forrest Gump by yeah. Winston Groom. And it's Forrest Gump's story of his life. And I really like the format they take for it. And I also like... It shows us how we could live. We could live with optimism. We could live with positivity. We could live with just keep going. And there's, there's nothing holding you back. There are no restrictions. There's nothing. Just live your life. Well, you know, Forrest is a metaphor as shown by the whole feather floating in the breeze. He's essentially, you know, a feather floating through a significant historical point in uh, U.S. history. And I had a feeling, again, that that one would be on your list. So I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, if we were talking about 1994, my favorite movies of the year or what have you, that would have definitely been on that list best picture winners and the 90s would be on the list but it's kind of just fallen off for me in recent years my next film is slumdog millionaire probably one of the most kinetic and um, energetic and probably one of the most kinetic and energetic best picture winners ever this was the year 2008 when the dark knight famously was not nominated probably the film that should have been nominated and won but we have slumdog millionaire and it is one of danny boyle's best films it's one of his most enjoyable films you know he himself is a director with an extremely varied career that's gone into horror drug culture comedy children's movies sci-fi all over the place and here we have a film that is showing us indian slums which is extremely intriguing and never wants, makes me want to visit India. <laughs> yeah, you know. Then you have Pride and Prejudice, which makes me want to visit <laughs> India. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's very well performed and it's very well directed and edited. And it's um, a great film. What's your number six, Shanna? My number six is The Sound of Music from 1965. I'm a nanny, need I say more? It's timeless, it never gets old, really, and it, picture quality holds up very well, at least with the remastered, the Blu-ray. It, it doesn't age, it doesn't... Like, the songs don't get old, you know? And he has a great film that shows... You know, it's, it's not about World War II, but... It's the backdrop. It's the backdrop, and that's good for me. Like, it's okay for me to watch something like that. Mm. And One of the best Rodgers and Hammerstein movies, and one of the only ones I like. However, even Sound of Music has some fat that I would trim from it, both in its song book and in its storytelling. It's a big fucking movie. Well, so is The Godfather, lovey. Yes. Lot less scening in The Godfather, however. How <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> My next pick is Shakespeare in Love from 1998. Now, it's not the best movie of 1998, famously, but, you know, this movie, we, we talked about it, I don't know, a few episodes back, and we talked about how much it, it actually holds up, how enjoyable it still is, how, how uh, delightful the comedy of it is, how incredible the cast of it is. And it's recently left Netflix and the other streaming platforms, so it's harder to find right now. Go figure. 
It was certainly a fine film and one of the best comedies of the 90s. So it's a favorite of mine. My number five is Spotlight from 2015, a film about journalism. Good journalism uncovering the underbelly, the child molestation within the Catholic Church. And it really goes into detail of how this was allowed to go on for so long, which is a question everybody has once they first discover, either through fiction, nonfiction, victims of this kind of abuse. So, that is a favorite. Hmm, interesting. My next pick is my number five, All About Eve from 1950. Starring Ann Baxter, Betty Davis, and very notable for having a small role of Marilyn Monroe, which... I was going to have this in my list, but I knew you would pick it. Oh, is it? Really? Really? (laughs) Uh, This movie is exceptional. It's, you know, it's uh, 60, almost 70 years old now. And it it holds up incredibly well. It's so sharp. It's so witty. Yet it's also like, you know, the story of 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 Eve and the 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 backstabbing and the the story about Eve played by Ann Baxter is just incredibly smart and and just scalpel sharp, I believe. And it's just one of those movies that, again, I think less and less people know about yet they might have heard a quote from it without even realizing it and really need to see this movie. I think they'll be really surprised uh, how well it holds up and how enjoyable it is and how fun it is, too. That's All About Eve from 1950. My number four is Moonlight from 2016. And everything about this film is a window into something I know nothing about, that I have no exposure to, about an African-American boy growing up, and he is also gay, and how that adds different layers to his life, to how he needs to be, to what's going to shape him into the man he becomes. One of the things that I am most drawn to in this film other than everything I just mentioned. I am haunted by the music composed by Nicholas Bertel. And I'm just looking at that year, 2016. Not only did he do music for Moonlight, he did it for Free State of Jones, which also has fantastic music. He did it for Lion. He did it for Nocturnal Animals, Arrival. And just amazing sounds that I listen to all the way to Seattle on repeat. I have like four tracks that I just listen to over and over and over again while I'm thinking of creating different photo shoots. So just a magnificently influential film for creatives. Yeah, that was a really great score and and a very, very intriguing pick. My number four film is another pick from the 70s. It's 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ah, and you see, I knew you were going to put that on your list, so I didn't put it on mine. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) Easily one of my favorite Jack Nicholson films. Mm. Anybody who grew up in the 80s or 90s will recognize several other faces in the supporting cast. 
of this film, like Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd. But, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is not only one of the great American novels, but also one of the great American films directed by Milos Forman, uh, filmed actually in the Pacific Northwest, by the way. Where? In Oregon. Anyway, Nurse Ratchet, speaking of forces of evil, she is absolutely mm. one of the most maddening villains ever on film. It's really not a wonder that R.P. McMurphy... Well, he doesn't go mad, but you would... Any sane person would go mad when they have to deal with someone like Nurse Ratchet. It's a, a great film about conformity and 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 standing up to the man and any sort of uh, uh, system and the madness of the bureaucracy of it all you know is it's a great film holds up very well today and it's always been one of my f- most favorite films since i saw it as a teenager it's a very good film i like how you mentioned forces of evil Number three is Silence of the Lambs. Speaking of evil, from 1991, best crime film ever. I'm surprised it's not your favorite. This is interesting. Well, you know, I'm all over the place. I love the story. I love the performances. I love, you know, the woman coming into a man's world, and she is the only intelligent one, seemingly. And then the only other intelligent force with her is the madman, the Dr. Hannibal Lecter. My third favorite film that won the best picture is 1995's Braveheart. I can't watch this again, ever. Now, this is a film that I watched a lot as a teenager. It was a favorite of mine and my friends at the time. It's one of the great historical epics, I think, and arguably Mel Gibson's best film as a director, potentially as an actor, too. The story of William Wallace, the Scotsman who wanted his country to be free of uh, English rule, is inspiring, touching, Especially the the final ten minutes will just tear you apart, um, and that is why I cannot watch it ever mm, again. It's incredibly brutal for the time as well. It may still be brutal uh, for today, but it's got some tremendous performances and a tremendous battle sequences. And I had this. This is a movie I had lower on the list, but I, when I thought about how how much I revered it and, and regarded it when I was a teenager and when it came out, I realized oh, I really I really needed to have it higher. And it's and I still do respect it quite a bit and enjoy it quite a bit. It's one of the few epics that I would rewatch readily. Well, you can watch that one with Logan. I will be out of the house. Yeah, it'll be a while. For the whole day. <laughs> uh, speaking of our son, I cannot wait to show him Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I'll wait for him to be of age, but I want to be the one that watches it with him, like, for sure. Number two is Schindler's List from 1993. That's your second favorite movie, the one best picture? It's the most important film. I mean, it's one of the most important <laughs> films. That's yeah. why I'm like, 12 Years a Slave. No, no, no. 
Well, yeah, historically accurate. 12 years a slave, then Schindler's, right? Or is it the other way around? In terms of... Time period, yeah. You got it right. Okay, yeah, that is how I would do it. And then we would have, like, recovery movies like Easy A and Ghostbusters. (laughs) So this is also, you know, I'll watch this maybe five more times in my life, spread out amongst children in my life. Five kids? No, I mean, like, that's, that's some of the spread out and, you know, sometimes the curiosity. Because... We see this film in black and white, and you guys know I'm a huge fan of black and white, and the way they did the lighting is just so sharp. If you look at those shadows, it's so 1940s. I mean, there is light and there is shadow, and it's fucking beautiful because that's, you know, one of my favorite historic times in photography as well, and, you know, the film is a very good depiction of the Jewish genocide. Very good. <laughs> Name a better depiction of the uh, Holocaust. I, I know I left that for last, but, the, the, you know, this film is hard for me too. Yeah, and that, that lighting, speaking of lighting, it evolves during the course of the film too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's very artistic. Well, and I think, you know, as, as, as horrible a depiction of humanity as this film is, the subject matter. There are a few comedic moments. Really? There's like two. I do not remember this. (laughs) The comedic moment that I'm thinking of is when the soldier is about to be sent to the front lines if he doesn't listen to what Liam Neeson's character is telling him to do Mm. and how quickly he jumps to helping as opposed to how paper pushing he was previously to helping him okay all right well that is an exceptional pick my second favorite best picture winner is spotlight from 2015 and you when you hear molestation in the catholic church doesn't sound like a good time at the movies but what is enjoyable about this movie is not only the performances by the cast, which includes Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, and Rachel McAdams, but also the attention to the journalistic process. Mm-hmm. It's the best film about journalism since All the President's Men, mm-hmm. I would say. And not only that, but... You know, it's it, it's a movie that shows that, yes, the press can still be relevant and important in a time when newspapers were shutting down left and right or are really in a crisis of being able to stay alive because everything's gone, you know, web-based news, right? You know, a lot of people these days, they get their news from social media. But, you know, there's a lot of questions about even the integrity of news organizations and such. And so it's really a relief and and wonderful to see when, yes, journalism can do something for good and can be about something, you know, and can expose injustices in our world still. As a result, I absolutely love the film. It doesn't rake you through the coals also over its subject matter, which is really key, I think, to its success and enjoyment as well. Well, and that also reflects 
what a journalist is. Factual to the point. Yeah, but I wouldn't say it's dry and distant film. Oh, no. My number one is Birdman, 2014. Really? For all the superhero lovers, the theatre geeks, the artists that are driven crazy. That is your favourite Best Picture winner. If you're given that choice of which one to watch, that would always win. Above all. Yeah, it's safe. It's huh. it's okay. It's it's well made. Right. The rhythm that this film has, I mean, the passion that is in this film, not only from the performers who are portraying their characters, that's like times two passion points, okay? The way it is filmed, there is one shot where it is a continuous shot and it is just mind-boggling how that was done in a seamless way. And I'm sure there was a cut somewhere, but it feels like it's one, sh- one take. And how they go through the theater from one point to the other point and oh, yeah, how they yeah. continue to follow this man yeah. throughout the film. Is, is, it's just it's dizzying, but it's exciting. And the lighting is amazing. And I love being in the theater. I, I'm not a theater person. I'm not that brave. But I love being the photographer in the theater going behind the scenes and being at the stage and all that jazz. And this, I would always pick. Like, if you said Silence of the Lambs, Birdman, I'd probably pick Birdman. If you said, you know, Birdman and 12 Years a Slave, guess what I'm picking? So that's my number one. I enjoy Birdman quite a bit for a lot of, some of the reasons that you mentioned. You, you knew I was going to pick it, didn't you? No, that's why actually, I, I really didn't. It was almost on my list, actually. And I, I booted it off uh, to get Spotlight in, actually. Boyhood should have won Best Picture that year. This um, is true. That was a marvel of filmmaking. And Birdman's kind of one of those oh, those love letters to theater. That's true. Kind of. So my favorite Best Picture winner, by far, hands down, despite whether or not it should Oh, my won, God. <laughs> I'm not going to like this. Annie Hall. Oh, God. From 1977. Hmm. Which took the best picture spot from Star Wars, but is one of the single greatest romantic comedies ever made, and I'm still holding to it. Tell me why it is the best romantic film made. Tell me why. Tell me why. Well, it's not for just one single reason. It's for a multitude of reasons. It is incredibly, it is iconic. It is incredibly quotable. There's so many things I could reference uh, from this movie. Diane Keaton's character alone was greatly influential at the time uh, in women's fashion. For those who don't realize, you know, she was wearing suits and and um, vests or what have you. Uh, she just made it really fashionable at the time. Uh, a lot of people were mimicking her look in Annie Hall. You have it's a it's a greatly influential romantic comedy. You see shades and ripples of this movie in several other films since Five Hundred Days of Summer being one of them. You there's so many different things. You have you know the sequence when Alfie is in the line waiting for a movie with his lover with uh, I think it was Diane Keaton at the time I could be wrong 
or they're listening to someone behind them arguing about a movie. And, you know, he literally is able to pull this professional out. And this professional, like, <laughs> destroys the guy who's arguing <laughs> and just completely discredits him. You know, it's things like that that is completely relatable. It's like, yeah, I wish I could do something like that sometimes, you know. Just completely, you know, destroy a blowhard behind me. <laughs> you know, you have the scenes of... You have these kids, the 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 segment where it's the the kids sharing who they're gonna be when they grow up or mm-hmm. what their interests are growing up is just hilarious and brilliant. Alvy's family when he was a kid, the whole living under a roller coaster thing. There's so many things that's just um, hilarious and brilliant about this film. I absolutely love it. It's my favorite Woody Allen film. I just fell hard for it when I first saw it as a teenager. Uh, you know, I've seen several of his movies since. He's way too prolific the past 20 years. I haven't seen all his movies. But none of them really have really quite measured up to Annie Hall to me. It is a great romantic comedy. And it's actually saying something. More importantly, it says something about love and relationships. You know, and sometimes it doesn't work out. And um, and sometimes it hurts like hell. I think... And it looks messy. I think there's something beautiful about the relationship between Alvy and, and Annie. And it's not something that we see often enough in romantic comedies. You know, they're often too safe. And this is not a safe, conventional movie. So I absolutely love it. It is my favorite Best Picture winner by far. Whew! My and gosh. We did it! We did it. <laughs> what are your right. favorite Best Picture winners? Email us, thegibsonreview at gmail.com. You lovely fans of mine can find me at shannapaxton.com, S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N. And you can find me at thegibsonreview.com where you'll find previous episodes, previous lists. Go back and check out the best of the of 2017, the best and worst article that was posted there not too long ago, as well as uh, past film faves articles too. You can also go to the Gibson Review on Facebook to find third-party links and mini-reviews, as well as links to these episodes. Go to iTunes, if you're not there already, for past episodes of The Movie Lovers. Give us a a review, would you? We would really appreciate that. Um, And go to Flickchart at the Gibson 99 to find me and my full list of every movie I've ever seen. Shanna, I have no freaking clue what we're going to watch next. Or what next episode's going to be. Oh, well, I was about to say, I hope we're watching I, Tonya tomorrow. That would be awesome. But as far as what the episode's going to be, you know, it comes out February 20th. That is just a few days after Black Panther. (gasps) Oh, my God. Are we going to do it? So it's possible the episode will be Black Panther, but the turnaround time on that is really, really tough. I'm sure people will forgive us. I want to speak all about the amazingness. We will definitely review Black Panther at some point. The timing of things is really rough. Fifty Shades Freed opens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
There's not really anything that that opens with the time of of everything, but we'll see what we can do. We'll see what we can do. Keep an eye out on Facebook. Uh, Ooh, maybe we, we can review Peter Rabbit. No, that is not happening. <laughs> I am gonna watch it though. Go it right looks ahead. Cute. Go right ahead. But keep an eye out on Facebook for updates on what the next episode's gonna be. It's just a really tough month and a tough time and. Uh, it's hard to get the timing of things down right for this month. We'll let you know, for sure. Until then, this is Jeff and Shanna saying, Keep Keep loving loving the the movies! movies. Bye-bye! Bye-bye!